Hey, welcome to the Church on Boulevard Sermons Podcast, an extension of the ministry of Church on Boulevard in Richmond, Virginia. We hope that you'll find your time meaningful and that you'll live life to the fullest as we grow together. Okay, so the scripture reading is going to come from Matthew chapter 4, 18 to uh, what, 22, I guess, is what we've got. Um, I'll draw your attention, if you have the red letter edition, uh, to the follow me. That's going to be um, an official rabbinic call uh, that was part of that culture at that time. So it gets emphasis here. So picking up at 18, as Jesus is walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in the boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called to them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is God's word. Yeah. All right. Question, how in should you be for Jesus? Should you be all in? Should you be partially in? Who here, if they were saying what they believe the correct answer is, based on that question I just asked, would say all in, totally in, fully under Jesus' lordship? Okay. Pew Research uh, asked a bunch of Americans... Uh, what they believed was their religion, what they identified as. 63, 64%, the number's been shrinking in recent years, but I I believe this was 2022, 63% said they would identify as Christian. Barna Group, which is a Christian uh, research research entity, then took that and said, now let's see if we actually ask people a survey of questions that we believe align with what it means to be devoted to Jesus, how many people would say they are devoted to Jesus? Not just that they identify as Christian, but that they're devoted to Jesus. And the percentage that they found, does anybody want to take a guess? Okay, so it was, a, it was a lower number. Yeah, 50%. Can I, get, can I get a 40%? Can I get a 35? Can I get a 30? 22. I got a 22. Can I get a 19? 12%. Can I get a 10%? Can I go down to 5? Can we go down to 5? Can we go to 4%? Because that's what they found. 4% of people actually find themselves going to church at least twice a month reading their Bibles on a regular basis, and turning to Jesus when they have major life conundrums, not just challenges, but just they need to solve problems. They turn to Scripture and the Word to learn from Jesus. So what does that show us? I mean, what does it tell you? It says that there's kind of a gap between what we think of as Christian in our culture and what we think of as being devoted to Jesus. Or as the text uh, today doesn't say, but a little further on in Matthew, what is called a disciple. Um, John Mark Comer uses the term borrowed from Dallas Willard of apprentice. That might be a better way to think of it, that we apprentice our lives to Jesus, that he is the master, that we're learning how to be with him, become like him, and do what he did. Uh, John Mark Comer, I love uh, this 
quote from him, and I just stated half of it, but I, I love the first half of it as well. He says, to live a life of devotion to Jesus, what it means is you orient your daily life around a threefold goal. To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. So, for many Christians, it seems like their answer to should you be all in would be, I'll be moderately in. (laughs) Everything in moderation. I suspect that there's reasons for this that are actually really good reasons. I actually uh, was a moderate Christian for the majority of my life. And it wasn't until really, not just being in ministry for years, but throwing myself into church planting where I really felt like I had skin in the game and I was learning what it meant to actually be a disciple whose life starts to change because Jesus is intimately acquainted with my daily life. But I think that a lot of people, their reason might be they don't want to come across as hypocrites. They've seen so many Christians. One of the number one reasons people leave the church nowadays is they view Christians as hypocrites. They hold other people to one standard. They say that they need to live to a certain standard, but they don't actually live up to it. And they lack compassion and they're very self-righteous. And that's one reason. Another reason, and this is what I was always afraid of, a fear of fanaticism, like religious fanaticism. So this is a slight twist on the whole hypocrisy thing. And I do believe that fanatics can be hypocrites, but a fear of fanaticism is I'm afraid to be seen as radically committed to Jesus because then other people might hold me to a standard that I'm not ready to project or live out. After all, aren't most religious people, in fact, aren't the most religious people the least loving, the least tolerant? Aren't they the ones responsible for the crusades? I think I'll be moderately in with Jesus, but I'm actually afraid that if I get all in with Jesus, I might start doing things that look rather unloving. And so I think to follow Jesus and to look most like him, I need just enough Jesus in my life to be kind and compassionate and tolerant, but not so much Jesus in my life that suddenly I'm willing to leave behind my job for him or my family for him. I don't need that much. Okay, what is the belief that's underneath all of that? That deep down, I wonder how many of us just think being a Christian in a postmodern context is not doable. It's just not doable. I can't actually do the things of Jesus. I had a friend, I had to do an interview assignment for seminary a few years back. I talked with a buddy who had deconverted from the faith. And he was very confident in it and very genuine. And I really respected his mind. So I said, hey, can we have a phone call? And I want to interview you for my class on what it means to like be a Christian and what it means, like why some people are leaving the faith. He said, absolutely. So we talked for a while. You know what he told me? He said he loved the teachings of Jesus. He even loved the teachings of his church that patterned themselves after Jesus. He even saw a couple people actually living that way. And he thought that was beautiful. He thought that was great for them. But he said the majority of people just can't live up to it. No one actually applies the teaching of Jesus in their life. And so it's all a sham. And I'd rather just give myself to some, to music, to another cause, to something that actually does good in the world was his language. And that was really striking to me because at the time I didn't really feel like what I claimed to believe was actually coming out in my actions either. 
Okay, but what if becoming an actual blood, soul, heart, mind, all of you, all in, disciple to Jesus, an apprentice to Jesus, devoted to him, what if that's exactly what the world needs from you? What if that is your greatest gift to the world? Dallas Willard says this, He says, the greatest issue facing the world today with all of the world's heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdoms of kingdom of the heavens people that are just with jesus that are becoming more like jesus and that are doing what jesus did and what if this type of life actually is entirely doable even in our postmodern context if it is then i think there's no better person to apprentice than Jesus Christ. We all give our lives to somebody or something. You're a disciple, whether you realize it or not. There's something that gives you a sense of significance and purpose in life, or someone that you pattern your behavior after. And they are the dominant voice in your life. But I would argue if it's Jesus, if that becomes the dominant voice, not only is it doable, it could transform you in a beautiful way. Charles Spurgeon was a famous uh, preacher, and he said this. He said, the best work is done by the happy, joyful workmen. And so it is with Christ. He does not save souls out of necessity, as though he would rather be doing something else if he might. But his very heart is in it. Jesus' very heart is after you. He rejoices in doing it. He doesn't come wagging his finger to discipline and chastise you. He rejoices in it, and therefore, he does it thoroughly and communicates, listen to this, his joy to us in the doing of it. In other words, what Spurgeon is saying is, if you're going to follow somebody, why not follow the most joyful, diligent, smart person who ever lived? And that's Jesus Christ. And the reason you do that is because he joyfully throws his heart in the ring with you. And because of that, no matter where you're coming from, you, the more you spend time with him, will start becoming like him. Like how my parents didn't like me hanging out with a couple of my buddies in middle school because they made me a brat. (laughs) When you hang out with somebody for long enough, you start to look like them and act like them. But if the person you're spending most of your time with is Jesus, then you're going to start looking like him. So let's look at our text today under three headings. That Jesus' call to discipleship is dynamic, that it's dangerous, and that it's doable. It's dynamic, it's dangerous, it's doable. Jesus' call to discipleship is dynamic. All right, let's take this with John Mark Comer's threefold goals. I think this this point is helped by having a substructure to it. So we're going to talk about what it means to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus said based on what we see in the text. Okay? As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, 
That's verse 18. Verse 21 says this, going on from there, he saw two other brothers. Jesus is going around and he sees people. And then after he sees them, it says they were casting their net in the lake. So they're doing their work. They're just doing their daily work. They're fishermen. And Jesus says to them in verse 19, come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they leave their nets and follow him. That's verse 19 and 20. Now let's jump to verse, uh, half of verse 21 and 22. He comes across two others, and they were in a boat with their father preparing their nets, and Jesus calls them, follow me. And immediately they leave their boat and their father and they follow him. The first guys leave their job. The second group of guys leave their father. What we see here is that Jesus does the seeking. Jesus calls four men to follow him to be his Talmudim is the word, disciple, traveling students, apprentices, Dale Bruner says, Matthew forcefully directs our attention away from anything in the disciples and toward the effective word of Jesus, which does everything. Jesus comes and says, follow me, and they follow him. All our attention in terms of their dynamic of coming to Jesus, all of our attention is actually on Jesus. What makes these people disciples? What makes these four guys disciples? Jesus invites them into an epic story, a dynamic life with him, and they drop what they have and they follow him. Jesus says, follow me. If you and I lived in that day and age, we would have associated Jesus as a rabbi. Rabbis, actually, that term was not, um, it was being popularized, I guess, during this time. It was just a century or two before Jesus that there were rabbis at all, that the Jewish school had actually reoriented itself so that at the top levels of education, you apprenticed yourself, you became a disciple to a rabbi. What that meant was you would go seek out a rabbi and you would apply to be their follower. They lived in a school of thought. This was not something invented by Jesus. This wasn't even something invented by uh, Judaism. Like Aristotle had disciples. Other philosophers had disciples. And what would happen is you'd go to that teacher and you'd say, hey, I want to be your disciple. And you would have had to have all sorts of education up to this point just to get here. This is like the pinnacle. This is like your PhD program. And they would say, I want to throw my hat in the ring to be your disciple. And the rabbi would say, great, answer all these questions. Depending on your score, then you will have a job interview. I will interview you on how much you understand my school of thought, my way of reasoning, my beliefs. And then if you're good enough, you can live with me, walk with me, become like me and do as I did. Students lived with their rabbis. They learned through process and incremental growth. They were not perfect at first. But there was an expectation culturally that they sought out their rabbis, and that's unusual with Jesus. Jesus doesn't invent discipleship, but he does it radically different. He doesn't make his disciples come to him. He goes straight to them. He seeks them out. It's very unusual for a rabbi to do this. 
This is the dynamic life with Jesus, that he calls you to follow him so closely that they would say the disciples got their rabbi's dust all over them. Because <laughs> I guess they had little flip-flops or whatever, and it would just kick up dust all the time, and they'd get it all over them. They were following so closely. John Mark Comer says something that I couldn't actually find in my research. Every time I hear another pastor say something, I go try to find it, because I'm like, I want to cite my sources, not... I mean, I trust them, but if it's a popular voice in culture, I want to see if there's an actual, you know, scholastic voice behind it. And I couldn't find this one, but I trust John Mark a lot. Um, he's a pastor, and um, he says that uh, when it came to collecting the dust of your rabbi, part of what that meant practically is students of a rabbi would even try to, like, imitate their accent, the way they talked, the way they stood. You, this is what I mean by all of us are disciples of somebody, because I used to really look up to a man who would always say, oh, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. He'd look you in the eyes and he'd say, I appreciate that. And the other day I was like, I found myself saying that like seven times in a conversation. I was like, oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And I was like, where did I get that from? Well, it was the person that I was modeling my life after. And it happened subconsciously over time. I just started talking like them. And you have people like that too. And it's not a bad thing to have people like that. But I think sometimes we need to do the translation work to say, that's what Jesus is also calling us to, that we're so close to him that we start imitating his mannerisms. All right. That's being with Jesus, that he seeks you out. That means that when you're having a quiet time in the morning, as some of us like to say, if we're Christians, and if you don't know what I mean by that, great, you're not in Christian subculture. That's fantastic. <laughs> but if you do know what I mean by that, and you're anything like me, you feel like you don't hear from Jesus for a while. I find in the wintertime, like right now, Paige and I were talking about this, I feel very spiritually dry. And I've been trying a practice recently of going, opening my Bible, praying, reading the scripture, and trusting that Jesus comes to me rather than leaving my practice and saying like, oh, I must not have done something to conjure up Jesus. I must not have done something right because I just didn't feel God this morning. But just being like, I showed up, I dropped my net. Jesus was there, his word was present. It'll do something in me. Interesting. I mean, do you think the disciples woke up every day and like had breakfast with Jesus and then like worried the rest of the day whether they actually had breakfast with Jesus or not? <laughs> we have to remember that that's what we're being called to do. It's way less burdensome when you think of it that way. All right, becoming like Jesus. Notice that Jesus' word draws these men to himself. What makes them disciples is that they actually experience the power of Jesus' words. In scripture, we'll see this time and time again. It's in Matthew's gospel as well. Everybody notices that Jesus speaks as one who has authority. There's something about his words. And that's why the Bible is so important. Because the Bible, we're told, are Jesus' words. He is the word made flesh. That means even the Old Testament is Jesus embodies when he's on the earth. That's why we want to read our whole Bible. Dallas Willard says, Listen, this is so good. Dallas is so good. Um, a disciple has ever increasing ability to live in the power that is strictly speaking beyond us, deriving itself from the spiritual realm an ever-increasing ability to live in Jesus's power. That's what it means to be a disciple. An ever-increasing ability to forgive somebody that you never thought you could forgive. An ever-increasing ability to sit still and let God delight over you. <laughs> An ever-increasing ability to give up your addiction. Because you're with him first. 
because a devoted follower is different than a dutiful servant. If Jesus has your heart, he's going to get your duty. (laughs) You're going to do works for him because you're going to realize how much he loves you and how compassionate he is towards your heart and how he has a great purpose for you. If you're with him enough, you will do the things of the Ten Commandments. You will not be stealing so much. (laughs) You will find, actually, and this happens to a lot of Christians on their journey, that you realize, I'm worse off than I thought. Because now that I actually fall in love with Jesus, I actually want to please him, and I'm realizing it's terribly hard to really do all the things that I think would please Jesus in life. But Jesus gives us the power His word is what draws them to be with him and gives them the power to drop the nets. And then doing what Jesus did, disciples are not passive. We see just in this text that right from the beginning, Jesus calls these men not to an experience of their personal salvation, but to a ministry with others. He doesn't say, I want you to have this great religious experience. All right, see ya. And leave. And they're just like, oh, I was so moved by that. That's literally antithetical to what it means to be a disciple. You see why the word disciple, it's so, it's so crucial to understand it because if you think deep down that it's going to church or religious experiences, then you don't think of yourself as a day-in, day-out apprentice to Jesus, and you're going to think that you can get just a little bit of Jesus. But actually, that is being a fan of Jesus. That is not actually being in Jesus's family. Because to be in Jesus's family is to walk with him, to become like him and do what he did. But think about this. This is very, very different than I think the way most of us think about religion or Jesus or Christianity, we think that we still have to do certain things for him. But when we see that it's just being with him that helps us understand how much he loves us and we start to become like him so his love starts to infuse our being, then we're going to naturally do what he wants us to do. My mentor, uh, Cron Gibson, told me when he was falling in love with his wife before they got married, he used to drive eight hours just to see her for four (laughs) on the weekends in college. Did he do it because it was his duty? No, he did it because he loved her. And she loved him. Jesus doesn't call us to a prayer room. He doesn't call us to a sinner's bench. He calls us to an extended course in education, apprenticing after him, and continuing studies of being a disciple. That's what he calls us to. These disciples are not passive. Could you imagine if they were? Could you imagine if they expected Jesus to do all the work for them? Like Jesus runs out into the water, yanks the net out of their hands, lifts them up, carries them. And just like their whole spiritual life, they're just being carried by Jesus. They wouldn't get any of his dust on them. They'd be too high up for that. They wouldn't actually know what it was like to have skin in the game. They would get fat, always hearing his teaching, but never moving their feet, never burning off calories, never going and doing. And we sit around like, oh, I don't want to be too much of a Christian because I don't want to be self-righteous. I don't want to be an arrogant person who just does all the right things. In fact, I want to be the type of Christian that like people see me and they're like, he's relevant. He gets it. He actually sins every now and then. He uses some swear words. That's pretty cool. (laughs) Comer says in his most recent book, we're more concerned with 
being self-righteous and not being perceived that way in our culture than we are with not sinning. Do you think it's better for you not to sin? If you do, you won't want to do it. If you think it's better to sin, then you don't really want to follow Jesus. And that means you don't trust him because you don't trust that what he'll do for you will actually be the best thing for you. So you don't want to be with him. And I'm not saying that harshly. I'm saying like, that's just the way it is. Listen, James, John, Peter, Andrew, they would not call themselves disciples if they stayed in their boat. They would say, this guy, Jesus, came and called us to be his disciples. We like his teaching. We even do some practices that are like him. We like some of his meditation, and we like that he gets off alone and prays. But they would be crazy to think that their life was going to transform from Jesus if they stayed in the boat. They would be crazy to say, you know what? I just don't know. Jesus just isn't working for me. He came, he called me from the boat, and nothing's changed in my life. I just don't get it. Why hasn't he changed my life? Why hasn't my life transformed? In their minds, that wasn't even a concept. They would be like, of course you haven't changed into the person of Jesus. You only know his teaching. Of course, you never walked with him. You never been with him. You never became like him. Of course you can't do what he did. Of course, duh. Not like, oh, shame on me. Like I'm not doing what Jesus asked me to do. But like, yeah, duh. I'm not gonna become a doctor if I don't go to school to become a doctor. And we don't apply that to our faith, you guys. But we need to. They're not passive. The definition of disciple means that you have to be with Jesus. You have to walk with him. Okay, here we go. They can't follow if he doesn't come to them. That is grace. He comes to them first. They can't drop their nets if he doesn't speak and his word doesn't have power and authority in their lives. So he empowers and equips them to drop the nets. But they will never learn who he is if they don't drop the nets and follow him. Man, it's complex. That's the only way I can think to say it is it's, it's hard to see it in our normal lives when we talk about terms like grace versus works. But when we see it in the text, we see, oh yeah, that makes total sense, doesn't it? it makes total sense. They got to drop their net at some point. It doesn't mean Jesus isn't gracious. It doesn't mean there's not grace surrounding their life. This leads to a demanding nature of following Jesus. Following Jesus comes with great cost, and that's what I mean by it's dangerous. Jesus' call to discipleship is dangerous. The Greek word for follow me in the text is in the present tense imperative. I just wanted to pause to see if anybody knows. I'm like, why did I even say that? I just wanted to prove to you that I like studied to tell you it's in the present tense imperative. That means nothing. Um, well, here's what it does mean. It, that uh, tense stresses the continuity of action. So here's what this means. Jesus doesn't say, follow me, and they say, ah, oh, and drop their nets and then stand still. Following Jesus is an incremental journey one step at a time. You're not perfected at first. They follow Jesus. There's a continuity of action. So here's how it might be translated differently. Live a life following me. That's very different than I was saved when I was 13 at a concert and I will see Jesus in heaven, which maybe that is how it works. But remember, you're going to disciple somebody with your life. So do you just want to meet up with Jesus in heaven? You might not even recognize him if you haven't spent enough of your life 
actually learning who he is and being with him. To follow Jesus is not a single act. It's all in devotion. It's dangerous in our individualistic culture. So hear this. It is dangerous to your autonomy of self. You have to give yourself up. Now, the flip side is there's a great reward to that that we're going to see later in this book. The great reward is you actually find yourself in the process because the person who's living for their job and discipling their job becomes less of themselves. We all know that. The person who's living for their family and needs to be good enough for their family becomes less of themselves. They become enmeshed, codependent. We have all sorts of psychological terms for it. The only person that will keep you free would be a person who is utterly free themselves because you're going to become more free as you become like them. So therefore, Jesus is the only person that you could disciple or he doesn't exist and we are all in a world of trouble. Jesus is saying you need a new identity to be a disciple. Disciple is not something you do, it's someone you are. Follow me so resiliently, so comprehensively, so wholeheartedly. Pattern your whole life after me. Every day, make it your goal to be with me, to become a little bit more like me, to do what I do. Jesus threatens your identity. He does. Absolutely, 100%. He threatens your sexuality. That's got to come in alignment. He threatens your job. You might have to leave a job for him. He threatens your sense of family. Of course, of course. But you're giving yourself to something or somebody. So is your sexuality the thing that you're discipling? If so, you're going to be running in a circle your whole life trying to figure out if you're happy or not. Is your job? Then your boss's opinion of you is going to have way too much weight in your life. Jesus does threaten your identity, but guys, everything threatens our identity. Anything we give our lives to threatens our identity. <laughs> because none of us are made inside of a vacuum or a test tube. We have to interact with each other. We're social beings. Who's excited right now? All right, it's a little rainy, so stay, stay positive. We're, we're getting to the doable point. That's next. But I want to show you one more thing. It's all in. Jesus comes to these guys, and it says they were fishermen. This is the fun part because this is like play on words. Fishermen, Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men, is what the actual Greek language says. But our translation does us a good service and translate it to fishers of people. It doesn't sound as cool as saying you're a fisherman, but I'm going to make you a fisher of men uh, because that's what Jesus actually would have said. But adolfoi, that term that Jesus uses, it means male and female. So it's not just about men. Okay. Again, nobody cares, but I did my research. <laughs> I did my homework. Uh, I'm kidding. Um, all right, fishermen, think about it. Fishermen work a job and get paid a wage. The wages of being a fisherman are gathering fish, cleaning your nets, doing all the things that make you a fisherman. All right. Fishers of people, on the other hand, that was an idiomatic expression for the time that meant be a great teacher who captures the hearts and minds of people. This was a phrase that would have been used in this day and age to say, you are a great teacher. Everybody wants to hear what you have to say. You fish for people. People jump out of the water for you. 
you captivate their hearts and minds. Jesus is saying, your job is important. In fact, the play on words is so helpful because essentially what he's doing is he's saying, you can do what I'm calling you to do within the mindset and the framework Sorry, within the framework of your job, not within the mindset of it. You can do what I'm calling you to do within the framework of your job. You can view yourself as a fisherman, but do not think that being a fisherman is your identity. You are going to be a great teacher. You're going to share my good news with people. You're going to captivate the hearts and minds of others. You're going to be all in. Jesus must be Lord or nothing. That's what the term disciple means. Must be Lord or nothing. You can't be halfway. We can perform religious duties. We can even drop our nets. But unless we walk with Jesus, we won't know him as Lord. So following Jesus is about devotion, not duty. And we talked about this just a couple minutes ago. You will be dutiful if you're devoted to Jesus. But what's the difference between devotion and duty? If you're like, seriously, like, just somebody answer me, like, what, what comes to your mind that's different? What are the feel words that come along with devotion? Obligation with duty. Yep. Devotion has what? Adoration. Heart. Soul. Being devoted to something is, it gets your heart, it gets your soul. Your actions are performed out of your heart being located someplace. Whereas duty can happen without devotion, right? You can do all the right things for your parents and be bitter and resentful towards them. (laughs) Or for your spouse and be bitter and resentful towards them. It happens all the time. It's why our divorce rates are so high. Because people do that for years and eventually they realize, oh, I never did the things that helped me fall in love with my spouse every day. And so they rightly say they're not in love, but they're not in love because of the little steps that they took for years and years and years. Now, don't hear me wrongly if you've been through a divorce. Like, there's so many reasons that can happen with a divorce. I'm not shaming on that. What I'm saying is, it's a good parallel illustration for what it means when we're following Jesus because he equates his relationship to us in scripture as marriage. And we're only gonna learn to love him if we actually are with him and walk with him. Okay, so doesn't that mean you're gonna be a religious nut job? Like back to the original question, this is what I'm coming, I came, I came full circle and we still have one more point left, but doesn't that make you a nut job? Isn't that the problem that we were talking about at the beginning? Like, doesn't that make you a fanatic, a militant, our culture loves to hate on the right wing conservative evangelicals. And there are so many problems on the right side of the aisle for sure. And you can be a liberal progressive left winger, yes, and be so militant about that, right, Hank, that you aren't loving. Yeah. Hank and I had this conversation this past week because we have had similar experiences growing up with people on complete opposite sides of the aisle, but we experience them the exact same. They hold people to a standard that they don't live up to, whether it's on the left or on the right. Left or the right. Can happen with parents, absolutely. My dad's in the back, Hank, be careful. <laughs> I'm teasing. Dad, you're wonderful. I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> I think this is why a lot of us worry. And deep down, even right now, and it's okay, you're like, yeah, it's still just not doable, Drew. I don't want to be a religious nut job. 
Here's what I want to show you. Here's the turn is that a religious fanatic is not a disciple and it's impossible to be a disciple and be a religious fanatic. Religious fanatics aren't all in enough. What is a fan of a pop star? A fanatic. Fanatics stand back and let their idol perform for them. They like the performance of the master, but a disciple loves the master. A fanatic likes the performance of a master because they can imitate that. They can dress up like them. They can put on the makeup. They can carry the sign and the poster around. They can let everybody know when, listen to this, when it benefits them. When it no longer benefits them, they will ditch that master all the time. I grew out of NSYNC in high school because of this. I'm now a huge fan again. (laughs) But I needed a break so that no one thought I was a weirdo. I wasn't devoted to them. I was a fan. It was cool in elementary school. It was somewhat cool in middle school. It cost me too much in high school, and I ditched it. That's what it means to be a fan. The problem with following Jesus as a fan is that you're actually following him in moderation. You're actually not giving him your whole heart. He doesn't get your heart. He gets your performance. Fans of Jesus are actually moderate Christians. They go to Jesus concerts, but they don't live joyful apprenticeship. This is why so many church services can get under our skin because we feel like it's a Jesus pep rally. And I don't want to shame on church and I'm tired that church has become like this, but it feels like a Jesus pep rally, doesn't it? And everybody there that's putting on the show for you is also exhausted and burnout and not happy about their lives. But the only way that can change is if actual people give their actual lives to being with Jesus, to be replenished by him. If you're burnt out on the church, I would argue it's the church's fault, not Jesus's. It's not that you aren't a good disciple because you're tired and burnt out on church. It's that you're tired of programming your life with Jesus programs and entertainment. And that is going to exhaust you, just like watching too much Netflix is going to exhaust you. Because guess what? What actually energizes you is getting off the couch, burning the calories, taking all that good teaching, all that good nourishment, all that good entertainment. Of course, it's great. I am not like condemning Christian entertainment. I'm saying is let that move you close to Jesus, not close to the performance. Don't be in the crowd, be a disciple. The problem with following Jesus in moderation is that you're most likely to become fanatical. You're most likely to become a fanatic if you follow Jesus in moderation. Why? Because you're going to perform for the benefits of Jesus when it helps you. That means it's a sin of motivation. Listen, your motivation when you are a fan of something is they actually serve you. They are good for you. If you become a fan of Jesus, that means you're following Jesus as far as he is good for you, as he gets you elected, as he gets you. That, that's why all of the people that we would call fanatical or radicals or whatever that we demonize in our culture, that's why they do what they do. They are performing and notice they are trying to get to Jesus. They aren't allowing Jesus to get to them. 
A disciple says, I'm not going to perform. I'm tired of performing. I'm exhausted. I'm burned out on religion. I'm tired of church. And I'm going to be here with the scriptures until Jesus comes to me. And when he does, then I will slowly let him pick me up. I will drop my net, but I'm gonna, it's going to take me a while to get back on track with him. You might have to take a break from all the churchy things for a while. It's demanding to follow Jesus, but here's the last point. It's doable, and this is so good. Here's why it's doable. Because it is the dynamic of the gospel to be his disciple. Okay, I feel like I'm losing you guys. This last one, I'm gonna go quickly. This is the most important thing you need to hear. This is where you're suddenly gonna leave and be like, yes, I can do it. (laughs) It's doable because it's shaped by the gospel. Fanatics don't have a deep enough view of sin. They think sin is behavior. As long as they do the right thing, they are good. And so they become self-righteous. Why? Because they look at people who aren't doing as much as them. This is why when I was in sixth grade, Luke Booth did not come to as many in-sync concerts as me. So he was not as good of a fan. And when we were hanging out with our friends and they wanted to know, oh, how much do you like in-sync and stuff? Of course, my body language, the things I said, how I said it, kind of condemned him. I was righteous. He wasn't. I was the bigger fan. Everybody else had sold out. They didn't know them when they had their mixtape coming out. They only knew them once the record, once I got signed to a label. And we do this with Jesus all the time. And we got to watch out for it because what that means is we think our actions are our sin. If you celebrate yourself because you're doing good for Jesus or you had a good quiet time or you felt good when you left church, listen, it's great to feel good when you have a quiet time or feel good when you leave church. But if that is your metric for whether or not you're following Jesus, you have not been with Jesus. Because once you're with Jesus, you'll realize your emotions can be all over the place because his were. (laughs) You can grieve and he can still be with you. You can still be so close to his heart. You can suffer and he can still love you so deeply and help you through it and let you become a light in the world because of it. You can still be a great teacher that fishes for people, even if you feel like you have no gifting whatsoever, because you understand that sin is not behavior. For a disciple, think about it. If what you need to be to be a disciple is devoted to Jesus, where he is at the center of your life, where you love him, then what's sin at that point? It's no longer duty. Sin is not getting it right or wrong. In fact, that has nothing to do with it. If you're a disciple of Jesus, sin is not bad behavior. It's anything that puts me in the center of my life instead of God or anything that gets into the center of my life instead of God. Selfishness is the true sin. My selfishness is the reason I behave immorally. Why do I steal? Because in that moment, I feel like that object of value is more rightly mine than someone else's. It doesn't ultimately belong to God. It belongs to me. That's why you steal. Take any of the Ten Commandments and you can work that grid over top of it. You do any of the sins in scripture because Jesus isn't giving you your nourishment, your life, your sustenance. A fan has Jesus as part of their life. A disciple, Jesus is central to their life. Central. Religion is a performance for God. Discipleship is gospel-shaped. Fanatics are fans. Disciples are family. 
to be a disciple is to be intimately connected with Jesus, to follow him in all areas of life. And you know what? Your moral life is not the goal. Intimacy with Jesus is the goal. And your moral life will follow. Remember, you become like who you spend most of your time with and who you imitate your life after. But know that Jesus is the one who initiates, equips, gives the power. You just got to drop the net and walk. See, a fanatic is not humble. They're self-righteous or depressed. They oscillate between two extremes. And if your Christian faith is doing that, you might need to ask yourself, am I a disciple or am I a fan? Because if you're suddenly feeling depressed, like God doesn't love you anymore and it's just crushing you, then that means you think that you've done something to earn God when you're doing well. That means you think when you feel good, it's because of your good behavior. So actually, actually, the Christian, the disciple of Jesus, the one devoted to him says, gosh, I feel depressed right now. God, you love me so much. Teach me through this. I'm with you. It still hurts. It's still hard. It doesn't dictate whether or not you're in or out. But those of us who feel like we're always in or out, hot or cold with God, it's because we aren't actually disciples anyways. We're just fans. Taylor Swift can let me down because I have no relationship with her. And she will if she gives up on Travis Kelsey. But, but at the same time, Taylor Swift is not going to die for me. She's not going to be with me when I'm at the crucible of all of my pain. But Jesus shows us that he is. And this is the last point is that fanatics actually have quite a small view of God because they think his blessing is dictated actually by them. They're the center of their world. How good I do is how good God blesses me. Because for a fanatic, they're still fishermen. God's their boss. What does your boss do? Your boss pays you a wage when you perform your job. And if you don't perform your job for long enough, your boss can be compassionate, but eventually what's the right thing for a boss to do in that moment? To let you go. Jesus never lets you go, ever. That's why the illustration is not that Jesus is your boss, that God is your boss. God is your heavenly father. And you might annoy your father sometimes. You might disappoint your father sometimes. You might even need to be disciplined by your father sometimes. But a good, perfect father loves you and never fires you and never lets you go and never gives up on you. In fact, if you're a parent in this room, you know that when one of your children is misbehaving, they actually get more of your attention. They get more of your heart. You love them so much. Fanatics are actually dangerous to culture and society. Absolutely. Disciples are only a danger to themselves. Disciples have to lose their identity in Jesus. But fanatics, they'll crush everybody around them. They aren't really in for Jesus. So here's how I'd conclude. We asked at the beginning, how in should you be for Jesus? And here's what I would say. You should be all in. Because... Anything else you give your life to will kill you. But Jesus died for you. And nothing else that you give your life to over time, if you just give your life to a cause or a political party or anything, we've seen this time and time again, it will all drain you of life. But if you are all in for Jesus, he will give you his life.
That's what it means. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Church on Boulevard Sermons podcast. You can find out more about Church on Boulevard by going to www.churchonblvd.com.